began our series in 1 Samuel last week, and we are seeing how um, 1 Samuel prepares us to long for the king, to look for the coming king, and really that's the theme of the whole series of the book of Samuel. As you're turning there, I want to just make a couple notes about the family meeting tonight. Um, we are, are looking forward to the family meeting. Not only we're we talking about mission and reviewing some things in the church, um, we're going to be talking about our church facility that we're looking at purchasing potentially. So we would love to have as many as you there as possible. We're going to be laying out the plans, kind of talking about our finances, laying out the plans to potentially purchase a church building, um, the Abundant Life Church building off of Highway 14. So we want to put that before you. And then this coming week, we'll be asking you to affirm that. So we would love to have you there for that. And then something else, as Mario mentioned, there's not child care. But you're welcome to bring your children with you. Um, if they can sit quietly, give them a coloring book or whatever, snacks, you know, uh, make them separate Skittles into different colors, whatever it takes. Um, we, we, you're, you're more than welcome. We would love to do that. We'll probably bring in our kids as well. So um, please, we'd love to have as many people as possible there. Um, talk about really this. I think God's got a, a critical juncture for us. And I'm, I'm looking forward to what God has in store for us as a church family. Well, turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And then uh, if you don't have a Bible, please look on with someone beside you. When we have lengthy passages of Scripture like this, I prefer to have all of us looking down at our Bibles and listening to God's Word at the same time. And so let's hear God's holy, inspired Word together. Paul, if you will read God's Word for us. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord, the host, at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day that when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? And am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, 
How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been poured out my soul. I've, I've been poured out, pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for it all along I've been speaking out my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the Lord God of the God of Israel grant you petition that you have been uh, that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and, and they brought the child to, to Eli. And she said, O oh, my Lord, as, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord for his child. I pr- for this child, I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition and made to him, and made, I, that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Father God, we look up to you and thank you that you are the Lord of hosts. You are the Lord God over all. That God, you are reigning and ruling and you are sovereign God. Thank you that you hear our prayers this morning. God, I pray that that you would demonstrate your character, your nature, God. That we would have trust and hope in you as a result, God. That we would look and see how you use just ordinary people, Lord, to accomplish your extraordinary purposes. Lord, how you use ordinary people to, to bring about your king. So God, I pray that you would, you would give us hope in you, Lord. You would enable us to trust in you. That you would encourage all those who are downcast, Lord. All those who are suffering and weary and tired, Lord. To cry out to you in faith, God. Knowing that you answer prayers. So we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, if you look out through biblical history, it's a story of flawed, failed, and ordinary people, isn't it? You look at the very beginnings of the, the people of Israel, the, 
the calling of Abraham. Abraham was just this obscure man. He was a moon worshiper in the land of Ur of Chaldees, and God called him out. He promised to make him a, a, a father of many nations. Gideon, if you look in the book of Judges, he was a simple farmer, and he was so timid that you find Gideon, he is in hiding in the wine press, threshing out the grain because he's afraid that the Philistines will come and steal his grain. And, and he's very timid when God comes to him, but God makes him brave and he uses him to bring deliverance from a much larger army in only a way that God could do. The story of Rahab in Jericho. She was a prostitute. You, an unlikely character. Someone who's not of notoriety. Not positively, at least. And yet, God used her to protect the Israelite spies. And as she put her trust in God, she was spared. And then, if you look in the lineage of Ruth, and if you look in the lineage of Judges, and if you look in Matthew, you can see that, that she became the mother of Boaz. She became the redeemer of Ruth, who would become the great-grandmother of King David. Martin Luther was just an obscure monk. In the Catholic Church, he caught a glimpse of God's word and he began to trust in God and he just protested excesses and he wasn't planning to start a revolution, really. And yet God thrust him into this role he never planned for to change the lives of millions. This ordinary, obscure monk in Germany. The disciples of Jesus Christ, they were just ordinary people. By and large, they didn't have any special talents. They were fishermen. They were blue-collar workers. You had a tax collector, but that wasn't really looked up to because they were cheats and thieves. And yet we see all throughout God's plan of redemption, how he does things in history. God uses really ordinary people who sometimes come from obscure places in difficult times. To do great things. We opened up the book of First Samuel last week. We saw that the book is set in the midst of a time when everyone is doing whatever's right in their own eyes. We can relate to that today. We talked about that. How if we look around us, the world around us seems to be turning away from the true king and doing whatever is right in their own eyes. And yet, in the midst of this difficult time, God brings this obscure man, Elkanah, and his wife, Hannah, from this nowhere backwoods place. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, God's about to bring his forerunner to the king. He's about to bring about Samuel, the great kingmaker, and really one of the, one of the great figures in history of the nation of Israel. He's a, he, he represents the transition from the time of the judges until the time when God would set his kings in place. He's a forerunner to the king, really. And this story, though, it begins in a, in a way you wouldn't expect. It begins with a relatively obscure man named Elkanah. And it, and it begins in suffering with his pain-filled, suffering-filled wife, Hannah. And we see a bigger idea in this story of this otherwise ordinary family. I think that God would have us to see. It really communicates something to us. That will serve really as the main idea of what we're going to focus on this morning of how, how God is the one. He, he carries out his plans. God carries out his plans through ordinary people who turn to him through difficult circumstances. 
That gives me faith. I don't know about you, but as I read this story and I, and I see these just, these ordinary, otherwise ordinary people in this backwoods obscure place, it gives me faith that we, we, we don't need to look on the circumstances, but we look to the God of all who is able to do extraordinary things and bring about his plans through ordinary people in the midst of a corrupt generation, in the midst of, of Christianity seemingly shrinking, or in this case, you know, the people of Israel, what people have followed after God were seemingly shrinking. The true believers at this time had become small. The people going to the temple were probably less. And yet God used this time to expand and to build and establish his kingmaker and his kingdom. Now, now, you need to know something. We talked a little bit about First Samuel last week. Some background there. First Samuel, it's a narrative. And so it teaches in a very different way. It teaches in an Old Testament narrative kind of way. And it teaches by examples. And so it sets out examples. The authors don't teach traditionally. They gather the details of the story. Although it is historical, they're not just writing history. The author of Samuel is, he's, he's collating this, this history for a purpose, for your theological intent. And he's laying that out there. In a way that you have to grapple with it and say, what is this story telling us? What is this example? How can we learn from this? And that's what we're meant to do with Old Testament narrative. And there's an expectation for the reader to think deeply about the story, to wrestle with. How do I apply this? And really, that's how we're supposed to face all of God's word is, how do we, how do we think deeply? How do we apply this to our lives? And I, and I'm, the reason I'm looking forward to going through First Samuel is because it, it speaks really to the examples and experiences that so many of us face and is set in the condition that really we find ourselves in where people are doing what's right in their own eyes. And it's like so many other great stories that have followed it of of ordinary people going on to do great things, of God lifting up the lowly, lifting up the humble, bringing down the proud. Maybe think of a story, the tale of the Princess Bride. If you've seen that movie or read the book, began with a fabled story of Wesley, the humble farm boy. And he goes on to become a great pirate. He rescues the princess from a land of an evil prince. But but really, that's that's drawing from stories like this, from real-life accounts. How, that's how God tends to work. Beginning of this book of Samuel, it's not a fairy tale, but it does bring us a, a remarkable, astounding truth that, that God brings about his plans through ordinary people. That, that gives me hope. I hope that gives most of the people in this room hope too because most of us are really just ordinary people, aren't we? Unlike other books, maybe that begin with these robust, these robust genealogies and, and you look through these genealogies to see all these great people and important people and well-known people and they've accomplished great things. And yet this story in First Samuel, it begins a little differently. It does begin with the genealogy and it begins like a birth narrative as, as other birth narratives begin. And you can anticipate when you have birth narratives in the Old Testament that it's looking forward to, it's foreshadowing of something great to come. But the difference is in this birth narrative, his lineage is not great. He's an obscure man. You know, it begins, you know, a certain man, you know, from Ramathaim Zophim. You know, it sounds like a fabled place. And it has to go on explaining where this is. Ramaphiam Zophim. Oh yeah, where is that? What, 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 what city is that? You know? Then it explains, well, that's, that's in the hill country of Ephraim. 
Oh, okay. Still don't know where that is. You know, scholars today, there's, there's, there's no significance to the town of, of Ramathaim, Zophim, except for the fact that God brought par- Samuel's parents from there. They can't even agree today where this, where this town really was or where, you know, where it might have been. It was a obs- town that was obscure back then and it remains obscure today. It's kind of like how I used to describe where I grew up. You know, I grew up in uh, Winchester, Virginia. And people would be like, oh, oh. It's a small town. It's um, kind of in the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, oh, oh, we heard of the Shenandoah Valley, you know, but, but, you know, don't know exactly where that is. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's at the base of the Appalachians. Oh, we've heard about places like that. And it's kind of a backcountry place. And, and then I said, well, it was about 70, 75 miles outside of Washington, D.C. Oh, okay. Well, we generally now know where that is, but it's this obscure place. It's, and I think the book of Samuel begins this way to show that how God raised up his man, his, his forerunner through whom he would do great things from a humble beginning, from an obscure place, from an unknown woman before this, from a, and he carries out his plans in an otherwise unremarkable couple from a little backwater nowhere of a town and you know maybe you're thinking well greenville is not really this you know burgeoning metropolis although it's a great city and we love it here but you know still today i explain i live in greenville south carolina oh where's that is that near myrtle, myrtle beach no we're we're a few hours away from that we're kind of near the mountains but not really we're kind of you know columbia some things happened recently there in south carolina but we're not there either we're about an hour and a half and yet God can do great things in an otherwise unremarkable place through ordinary people. Thinking about tonight in our family meeting, looking forward to talking about how, how really we're just an ordinary people. And yet I'm in faith that God is, he, he brings ordinary people through often difficult circumstances to do great things. Most of the time you look to a lineage to point out notable people. You know, the book of Numbers, it includes the genealogies of the tribes of Israel. And it shows how God carries out his promise to the children of Israel and all the lineage of each of the different sons. And it shows out how God has been faithful to build these things. And the book of Matthew, it opens up with the genealogy of Jesus, the final king of Israel. You know, you have Samuel who stands before the, the first king of Israel. And then the other genealogy we have with some of the same... People in the story of Samuel, the final king, the genealogy is significant. It traces the earthly lineage of Jesus back to the great king of Israel. You know, the book of Ruth, it, it points out the lineage of Ruth and Boaz and demonstrates God is a great redeemer who brings his king from a woman of lowly nature. He brings out his king through Naomi's tragedy and despair. That's the context that first Samuel is kind of set in. This, this pattern of God bringing about extraordinary things through ordinary people. God bringing about his plans through otherwise ordinary people. I want to show you that from Ruth, who was really set at the same time in the middle of the book of Judges somewhere. Chronologically, we have it before Samuel, but it was actually placed after Samuel in the Hebrew Bible. But in Ruth four thirteen, he says, So Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. Then a woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age. That's what God does. He restores life. He nourishes an old age. 
It says, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who has more than seven sons, has given birth to him. You know, we have this, this lineage at the end of the book of Ruth that, that goes in from Ruth and Boaz and the kinsman redeemer who fathered Obed, who fathered Jesse, who fathered King David. This obscure woman and she really was used by God to redeem Naomi, the barren Naomi, who was, who renamed herself Mara or Bitter. And yet God used this difficult circumstances because that's what God tends to do. Genealogy of First Samuel, God brings about this obscure man and he uses him to bring about his divine kingmaker. It reveals God's nature and his tendency. He takes those who are obscure, those who are a downcast, those who feel like they're nothing, those who are bitter, those who are hopeless, and he gives them hope. And that's what we need to see here at the very beginning of Samuel. It's a story of the great God, the Lord of hosts, who, who brings hope to the hopeless and uses ordinary people to carry out his plans through difficulty, through obscurity, Maybe you're facing some difficulty. Maybe you're feeling obscure. Maybe you're feeling like your life doesn't amount to much. Well, that's a good starting place because that's the kind of people God uses. He doesn't want us to trust and hope in ourselves. You know, I'm in my 40s now, and this is a time when when you're tempted to think about, what have I really done? What have I really accomplished? What's really going on in my life? And yet, that's the time when we really need to say, God, It's not about me, but it is about you. And God, thank you that you are the one who restores and redeems. You're the one who uses ordinary means and ordinary people to accomplish your plans. Verse 2, we see the obscure man. He had two wives. It was a very difficult situation, a difficult marriage. And so a second truth revealed in this account that we're going to learn from, and it's going to carry on through a good portion of the first chapter of 1 Samuel, is that God brings about his plans through difficult circumstances. Maybe this morning you're facing difficult circumstances. You may be without a job or maybe you have difficult circumstances in relationships. Or maybe you look around you and you're tempted to fear or have anxiety because things seem unstable. Elkanah and Hannah were living in a very unstable time when people were doing whatever was right in their own eyes. Hannah was living in a very difficult marriage. Maybe some of you have difficult marriages today. God brings about his plans through difficult circumstances, through difficult marriages, through trying times. In this opening of the book, it sets the stage with this very difficult marriage. Elkanah, he had two wives, and it's not good, although Scripture doesn't specifically condemn that here. Um, It never ends well. You know, possibly he took a second wife, Peninnah, because Hannah could not conceive. That's probably most likely. We don't know for sure why, what motivated things. But we we know that, that Hannah, she's barren. She's infertile. She has no children. She isn't the first barren woman we encounter in Scripture, though, is she? She's not the first one who was barren that God made fruitful. She's not the first one who was barren that God brought life and his promises through, is she? I want to recall some of those people for you. And I, you know what I love? Not only does God use the barren, he uses a segment of society. Women in that day were seen as second class, and yet it's primarily in this great redemptive moments where God brings about his blessings through women made in his image. 
And so we see Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who God promised to make the father of many nations. You know the story? She was barren. But not only that, it was hopeless beyond that. She was so barren that she was beyond the childbearing ages by far. And yet, God did the impossible and brought about the child of the promise through her. Rebecca, if you know the story, she didn't have children for over 20 years. And it was a source of difficulty. Rachel, she was barren for many years. She endured turmoil. And she battled with her sister Leah. And God opened her womb and raised up Joseph, the man through whom God would later deliver all the family of Israel. You see a pattern here in how God works. Manoah's wife was barren until God calls her to be fruitful and have a son named Samson. You remember him? And at the end of his life, it, it, has, it says that you know in Samson's death, he delivered more people in his dying breath. And he brought that about through difficult circumstances, through sin. Because God carries out his plans through sin, through difficulties, through barrenness. And in Hannah's day, he didn't just begin with a barren Hannah, but he begins his plans in distress and sorrow. Why do we need to see that in the story? Why was the author writing this? Because I think that most people are inclined in the midst of distress or sorrow, in the midst of difficulty or barrenness. They're they're inclined to lose hope and lose faith. And what do we need? We need hope. We need faith in the midst of barrenness, in the midst of feeling like everything is against us, like we're all alone in the midst of our distress. You know, in that day, it wasn't just um, infertility, although that is a significant, significant battle and challenge for women in our day, still. And not to, to compare and think it was worse then, but back then, they faced some social problems when they were barren. People looked down on women because women were seen, um, wives were seen as being good for producing offspring and heirs. And a wife who could not do that was seen as inferior and to be cursed by God. It was seen that she had no heritage, no place. She couldn't produce. She didn't have value. She didn't have worth. You know, as an aside, I, I, um, we, we can't help but read the story of Hannah and her pain And it helps us understand the pain of women maybe in this room who are going through infertility and struggling with that where they've felt like, God, you know, my whole life I dreamed. Dreamed of being a mother? God, you brought me a husband. God, you brought me this place. And yet, I don't have what I thought I wanted. And so Hannah... She was tempted to feel spurned by God. She hadn't received a good gift of a child and she, she, she can be left to wonder, God, do you really care? God, do you notice? Is there something wrong with me? Maybe I've done something wrong to bring this on myself. Those are the kinds of questions that Hannah must have faced. Those are the kinds of questions that women who are infertile today face. Feel like they've hoped their whole lives for something they're not receiving. Hannah felt that way, I'm sure. We see that she was bitter, she was grieved, she was sad. And it's in this setting that God works. God brings about his great plan in the midst of sorrow and distress. And it's in this setting that God carries out his plans to this obscure, flawed people in a difficult marriage, in difficult circumstances, 
You know, Elkanah, he was, he was in some ways a devout man. He went up to worship God. And that was not a prominent thing in that day. Everybody knew what was right in their own eyes. Elkanah, he was seeking to do what was right before God. At the same time, he wasn't pleasing God. Not only did he have two wives, he played favorites. He caused problems between them by doing so. He tempted Peninnah to jealousy. And he tempted both women by bringing another woman into the marriage. You know, whenever a man brings another woman into marriage, it's terrible and causes incredible problems whether that's woman on the internet or woman he becomes too close to at the office or maybe it's the office wife or woman he brings into his own bed it's always devastating and it's in the midst of this devastating difficult marriage that god brings about his plans and it says that Elkanah, he went up to Shiloh. Now, in case you don't know where Shiloh is, Shiloh was the first place when Joshua brought the children of Israel into the promised land and they established the tabernacle in Shiloh and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is prior to Jerusalem being around. Actually, Jerusalem was not a part of Israel at this time. David hadn't been brought to, to, to bear and yet he's going up to the place where God's presence was. But even in his sacrifices, he wasn't exactly just. It says he gave a double portion to Hannah. And you think, oh, that's really kind of him. Well, that was actually really wrong of him to give a double portion to her in a sense because he was playing favorites to his wives. And that didn't go well for Hannah, so that didn't actually help her. That made Peninnah hate her more. And you can imagine, it says that, you know, she was constantly berating The narrator comments on the extent, though, of Hannah's love Elkanah's love for Hannah, he says, is so great that he loved her even though her womb had been closed by God. And, and if you read this, it's important to note that little point. This barrenness was not a result of sin. It was not a result of wrongdoing, but God had sovereignly closed her womb. God caused her suffering. It was the cause of some deep and painful suffering for her. And often, God works this way. Why? Is is God mean? No. You see, why does God often bring difficult circumstances like this, difficult marriages, difficulties in producing? Well, often it's to turn us away from any other hope in Him. Not because He's mean or selfish. But God does whatever it takes at times to turn us away from hope or satisfaction in any other things, in people or circumstances, precisely because God wants to satisfy us with himself, with his goodness and in himself. Ultimately, the reason why at times God permits and even closes wombs is so that we will be satisfied in him because anything less than God, even children won't satisfy even a good marriage even good circumstances even a job those things ultimately don't satisfy only god can satisfy and often in the midst of our pain and suffering it can be difficult to see as god's goodness but that's what he uses to drive us to him it's not meant to drive us away it's meant to drive us to him and say god i look to you because in you alone is my hope you look in verse 6, the author writes, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. So not only is she a rival, Peninnah's a rival, that's not a positive thing, she provoked her. And she grievously provoked her with the explicit purpose to irritate her. Maybe you feel like you have people in, that, in your life like that right now. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's people around you. 
And maybe that provocation is coming as a result of the Lord closing doors or closing things in your life. And it says in verse 7, So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. And then the result is Hannah is discouraged, down, depressed. It says, Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Peninnah was her rival, and she used to provoke her to irritate her on purpose the fact she couldn't have any children. And she's like, oh, Hannah, we're going up to sacrifice again. Do, you, do your kids have um, the meat for sacrifice? Oh, I'm sorry, you don't have kids, do you? She was mean, she was callous, but it isn't too unexpected. Elkanah brought two women in his marriage. He played favorites, and Hannah was suffering. It wasn't short-term suffering either. It says, year by year, it went on. Year by year, it went on. Maybe you're in a long-term period of suffering or difficulty. Maybe you're in a long-term period of, of challenges. We need to hear the story because God brings about his plans through long-term difficult circumstances. The narrator wrote, Therefore Hannah wept and she wouldn't eat. She was sad. She wept. She couldn't bring herself to eat. She was depressed, whatever you want to call it. She was grieved. She was full of pain and suffering. Her husband Elkanah noticed and he, he obviously loves her in his own flawed way. And he says to her, he says, Hannah, why are you weeping? Well, you probably should know that answer, first of all. Um, if he had a clue, he would have noticed that she's been barren for many years and that Peninnah is harassing her. He says, why don't you eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And say so he seems to mean well, but he doesn't do a very good job. He says, in effect, don't you know I love you? You know, I'm, I'm, Aren't I worth more than sons? Aren't I enough for you? Instead of maybe putting a little better understanding women he's like a typical man and he he's not the best at expressing himself and assuring his wife's heart and, and instead he tells her you know all right worth more than 10 sons it might, it might have been a little better as you said you know hannah you are worth more to me than 10 sons you know that would have been really cool that's not what we have he said you know honey i i love you so much that I don't, I don't care if there, we never have sons because you mean more to me than a thousand children. No, he says, what's the matter? Why are you crying? Why are you weeping? Are I worth more to you than ten sons? And like so many of us, they try to comfort another person in sorrow but fail. Elkanah means well. His comfort isn't the best. He doesn't really help. And, but he, I love the response. Hannah's not putting her hope in her flawed husband. She's not putting her hope in her painful, difficult marriage. She realizes, she wakes up, she's stirred from her stupor. She, she knows there's someone who now, who can help at the, at the, at the lowest point. There's someone she can go to who will hear her in the midst of her troubles. And God was driving, driving her to go to, to Him. Look down in verse 9 for a moment. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. How does she respond when she got not the best encouragement? <laughs> she doesn't trust in her husband or her circumstances. She rises. She gets up. She does something about it. And she goes to the temple of the Lord. And what the author is revealing to us in this third truth is that God brings about his plans through those who turn to him in prayer. God brings about his plans through those who turn to him in prayer. In the midst of difficult circumstances, where do you turn? 
in the midst of a, of a nation around you that might seem to be going their own way, doing what's right in their own eyes, where do you turn? Do you begin to doubt? Do you begin to have a lack of faith? Maybe, maybe the temple, maybe the church is, is not growing, but maybe the people who are following after the Lord and coming to church, maybe that, that number is growing. Where do you turn? Where do you look? Where's your hope? Hannah didn't remain focused on the difficulties or the circumstances around. She didn't even look to her husband for solace or reassurance. She gets up. She does something about it. She doesn't take revenge or lash out at Peninnah. She she gets up. She brings her request to the only one who could do anything about it. She goes to God. There's something for us to see there, isn't it? In difficult times, in times of distress, in her darkest hour, she goes to God. Where are you and I going? Where are we looking? We aren't guaranteed that how God will answer our prayers, but we know from Hebrews that He bids us, because of Jesus Christ, He bids us to come boldly before the throne of grace, not as an outsider, but as His children. This is adopted heirs. We're to come boldly before the throne of grace. And so we see Hannah, she had an understanding really of who she was as a child of Israel, a child of the promise. And she was placing her faith in God. And we see this contrast, this lowly Hannah, this woman God had made barren for his purposes. And we see this exalted high priest Eli. And what's he doing? She rises, this lowly woman rises up to go and pray. This exalted priest is sitting at the door to the temple not busily at work. In her distress, she pours out her problems. She weeps bitterly before the Lord. That's good to see. It's, it's encouraging to know that God wants us to come to Him. But He wants us to come to Him to pour out our sorrows. He wants us to come to Him to pour out our distress. He wants us to come to Him to, to pour out, as Hannah says, our souls. But she comes to God in a way that's instructive for us, that we need to come to God as well. She doesn't just come to God humbly and pouring out her soul. She does that. But she comes to God aware of who God is. Are you aware of who God is? She comes to God aware that He is the Lord of hosts. This is really the, only the, the second time in all the scripture that that name is used for God. The first time was just a few verses earlier referring to the Lord of hosts, but this is the first time we ever see somebody praying to God as the Lord of hosts. She calls on God as the Lord over all things. Do you call on God that way? Do you, do you, are you aware that no matter what you see, no matter what barrenness you have, no matter what barrenness you see around you, no matter what you see the culture around you going, are you calling out to God who is the Lord of hosts? And do you see that he's the Lord of hosts, that he's over all things, that he's over all earthly armies and powers, he's all over all principalities and powers? It's the same word used in Isaiah 40. It says, to whom then, God is saying, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out the number by host, host by number, that's the same word host. He who brings out their host by number, he's the Lord of hosts, calling them all by name by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Hannah calls out to God as the Lord of hosts. I think that question in Isaiah is a good question for us. To whom then will we compare God? Maybe to whom do we compare God now? Do we see that God really is greater? He really is the Lord of hosts? He's able to change any and all circumstances? Or do you kind of still have a doubt in the back of your mind? 
Hannah trusts in who God is, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who has power over all things. And she's acknowledging that God's sovereign over everything. I, I love the way that, that Dale Davis, uh, by the way, I benefited greatly from his, his little book on First Samuel. It's looking to the heart. I think we have a few copies of the bookstore. I really encourage you to get it. If you want to learn about First Samuel, you want to apply these things to your heart, he's a great author at helping you apply these, these truths of Samuel. And he says, she, speaking of Hannah, addresses Yahweh of hosts. Cosmic ruler, sovereign of every and all power, and assumes, this is really cool, assumes the broken heart of a relatively obscure woman in the hill country of Ephraim matters to him. And then he says, in parentheses, believers use some of their best logic in prayer. She assumes that the broken heart of a relatively obscure woman in the hill country of Ephraim matters to him. Do you assume that? You can assume that. You come to the Lord of hosts in the midst of our distress and barrenness and emptiness and turmoil and maybe anxiety or fear or a a, a lack of clarity or ambiguity of your circumstances or you look around like, God, what's going on? What's happening? In the midst of those things, we come to the Lord of hosts And we can assume that he cares about our barrenness. He cares about our relatively obscure circumstances and our broken hearts. Hannah's not dictating the outcome of her prayers, though. Look, she comes to him three times. She refers to herself as the servant of God. She comes humbly. She doesn't just bring her her distress and sorrow, too, though. She she does something else. She promises something to God. Now, before we go further... I want to caution us that this is a, is a rare occasion where you see someone making a promise like this to God. Now, at the same time, we can be encouraged that, that God honors those things. But James, the brother of Jesus, he, he warns us, you know, be careful. Yes, you yes, yes, you know, but you know. Be careful about making promises to God you can't keep. At the same time, she makes a bold promise. She makes a bold request and a bold promise. She makes that bold request and bold promise knowing who God is and that God cares about her. We can bring our bold requests and even make bold promises knowing that God is over all things and he cares about us in the midst of our distress. Now, don't use this story like some kind of formula to indulge our desires to get what we want. And some 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 folks who come from a a, a different background. I've heard the heresy that, you know, if you just believe enough and have enough faith and you ask God, then God will, will really be your divine genie. But sometimes the, the answers to prayer that we hear are wait or no. God often drives people to a low point, to a place of despair, so they won't hope anything else, but ultimately they will turn to God and hope in Him. But we see something else. We, we see, though, that, that God does want us to come to him. And he wants us to come to him in faith. He wants us to come to him boldly. And he wants to accomplish great things through people who come to him in prayer. And so Hannah prays. She makes a promise. She makes a vow on behalf of a child she doesn't even have yet. She, she makes a vow about her son. She doesn't even have a son yet. And she makes this, if you're wondering what kind of vow is this, she's not going to cut her hair. It's a Nazarite vow. We hear, we hear about that in number six. If you want to look back there sometime, number six, God is ordaining this Nazarite vow that people can make. Normally an adult can make for a time. And at the end of the time, they'll cut the hair. But, but Hannah's making a Nazarite vow, but she's not making it for herself. That would normally be the case. She's making it on behalf of the son she doesn't even have. Talk about faith. 
She has faith in God that she obligates her, her children. And by the way, there's something good about that, obligating your children in a sense. You know, when, when I'm raising my kids, I want to train them and teach them and instill God's word in them. And there are obligations I place on them when they're young so that when they're old, they won't depart from it. And so she's committing that she's going to instill these character attributes in her son. She makes a vow for him, obligating him and herself both. And then, and then she goes into the temple and, and the priest, he's, he, he doesn't get it. Instead of comforting her, or asking her questions, Eli makes some assumptions about her. He's sitting there. He's rude. He interrupts her. He brings her correction. Instead of bringing her comfort, she's, she, if, if he had, had his eyes open, if he's really the great high priest, he should have been more discerning. He should have understood when people were suffering a scene. She's weeping. Maybe she's not drunk. Maybe she's actually sad. And she's weeping. She's distressed. And she's, and he's too blind to see. And that's just, that's something, a theme we're going to see really next week too, that Eli's blindness, the exalted Eli is brought low. He's blind here. And this is really the only the start of seeing how bad this man was. And, 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 and I wonder, though, you know, how often we can be prone to make quick judgments about people we, ha- we see or we know of another person without knowing their pain and suffering, without taking time to ask questions, to understand. Eli doesn't ask questions. He doesn't understand. But that's not too different from a lot of us. We're tempted that way. We're tempted to judge. We're tempted to be self-righteous. But Eli's wrong. The writer's painting this picture of how he lacks character as a godly priest. He's not a godly priest. He should have been gracious and kind. He's full of judgment. He treats Hannah harshly. He accuses Hannah of being drunk. What are you doing here, drunk? Put away your wine from your woman. In verse 15, though, we see this lowly Hannah, this barren woman. She stands tall as a woman who's relying on God. Look down on your Bibles in verse 15. He says, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have neither drunk wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Don't regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And that's how often how we come to God, speaking out of our great anxiety and vexation. And that's how God bids us to come to Him in prayer. In the midst of our deep anxiety and vexation, to pour out our souls before God. And then in this rare moment of godliness, Eli does something right. He gives Hannah the priestly blessing that he should have done to begin with. Maybe, you know, we don't know his motives. Maybe he blessed her because he was embarrassed for being wrong. Maybe he blessed her because he felt bad. But he gave her what she really needed to hear in the first place was, was commendation from God and pointing her to faith in God. And he, he gave her the blessing of God. And boy, that's a good, good thing for us to see that that's what hurting people need. They need to experience God's blessing. And we need to be looking for people when they come in, looking for people who are downcast and sorrowful and and encouraging and bringing them blessings from God. So Eli answers, he gives her a blessing and says, go in peace. And her spirit is immediately lifted. She immediately places her faith in God. And that's, that's what we're to, to do and respond in prayer. When we pray, when we bring God in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our distress, our anxiety, pour out our soul. But then we not only start placing our faith in the Lord of hosts, we say, God, now that I've done that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rest in you and trust you with the outcome. And so she does. She says she gets up. She eats. 
She's not depressed anymore. She trusts in God. Verse 19 says, They all get up early the next morning. They all go to worship before the Lord. They go back to the house at Ramah. And then it says, And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And so we see really this fourth and final truth that God brings about his plans through answered prayers. God does bring about his plans through ordinary people in difficult circumstances through answered prayers. The Lord of hosts, it says, remembered her. It doesn't mean God forgot her. That's a euphemism for saying that from her perspective, God remembered the prayer that she had. God had never forgotten. God closed her womb to bring her to a low place so she might come to God and pour out her request so that God might satisfy her in himself. And so God remembers her in that sense. And there's something interesting in the account we see in 1 Samuel. She names him Samuel. Now, you might lose it, but the L at the end of Samuel it was, was short often for um, Elohim or the name of God. And so in Hebrew, this, this name Samuel, it means literally the name of God. And, then, and it, it carried the meaning of the colloquial meaning of asked of God or heard of God. But literally, it means the name of God. And it's interesting because if you remember, I told you about number six. It talked about a Nazarite vow and making that vow. After giving instructions about that, God gives Moses and Aaron um, a priestly blessing. Some parallels here. Okay, Nazarite vow, a priestly blessing. In Numbers, we see a Nazarite vow, then a priestly blessing. In Numbers 6.23, it says, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So see this blessing from God after this Nazarite vow. Hannah is making a vow. She receives this priestly blessing from God. There's something interesting in in verse 27 of number 6, the very next verse. It says, God says, So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Hannah makes a vow. She receives a blessing. And then she puts God's name on her child, calling him literally God's name. What What a wonderful picture of how God blesses. She put God's name on her child, and God blessed the nation of Israel through Samuel to bring about Saul, who people thought maybe he's the real king, and then to bring about, to coordinate David, the first great king, really, of Israel. And God worked through lowly, obscured people, through difficult marriage, through flawed priests, to bring about the one who would set his name bring his blessing on the people of Israel, and Samuel would go on to be the means through which God would anoint and ordain David, who really we know is a prefigure of Jesus Christ, who was called what? Emmanuel. God with us. God setting his name. Yeshua, or or Jesus, means Jehovah saves, God saves. His name was set upon him, through whom blessing came. And he's the one through whom God has blessed to fulfill all of his promises through all of the difficulties and terrible circumstances and bad marriages and flawed people and lowly circumstances and pain. And God answered prayer through obscure people and obscure places through barrenness and brokenness to bring about his good plans. So what what do we learn from all this? I think we learn a lot about the character and nature of God. 
We learned a lot about what does it look like to trust in God? What does it look like to come to him? What does it look, what should we do in difficult circumstances? You know, why do we have difficult circumstances? We can learn that sometimes those things are not having anything to do with anything wrong we've done. And yet God calls us to come to him. And isn't it like God that he brings about his plans through flawed, obscure, and even barren people? And I want us as a church to have faith and have hope that no matter what it looks like, God brings about his plans through small people, through obscure people, through seemingly barren people, and he brings about his great purposes and his great plans, and that shouldn't be surprising to us. Um, if you remember, the Apostle Paul wrote to us in 1 Corinthians one twenty six. he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. That's good news for us. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. Maybe you're feeling like you're, a, you're someone that's not. We're a church that's not. Maybe you're feeling that way. Since he chose this thing to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And thanks be to God that he doesn't allow us to boast in our own strength. He says, he is the source, in verse 30, of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the Lord who hears our prayers. We may not be wise, we may not be powerful, we may be weak, ignoble, foolish, low, despised. God calls all those things to bring to nothing the things that are. He's the source of our life in Christ Jesus. Great reformer, Martin Luther, he once said, God is the God of the humble, the miserable, the afflicted, the oppressed the desperate, and of those who've been brought down to nothing at all. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel like, God, I'm miserable, I'm afflicted, I'm oppressed, I'm desperate, I've been brought down to nothing. And then he goes on to say that it's God's character. He says, to exalt the humble, to feed the hungry, to enlighten the blind, to comfort the miserable and afflicted, to justify sinners to give life to the dead and to save those who are desperate and damned. We're desperate. And apart from God's grace, we're damned. And yet God is the Lord of the hosts, the one who exalts the humble. He feeds the hungry. He enlightens the blind. He comforts the miserable and afflicted. He justifies poor sinners like you and me. And he gives life to all of those who are dead like we all were in our sin. And he saves us who are desperate and all those who were damned to call on his name. At the end, we see what God does. Hannah makes good on her vow. She brings her child He's probably somewhere between two and three, the time of weaning. And she brings her only son at the time, her miracle boy. And, and yet we, we see something about the motive in prayer that God answers. She's not praying just to fulfill her own desires. She's praying ultimately that God would work through her desires. And we see that that's what she was really praying because not only did she promise that, she made good on that promise. She gives him back to God. And, and really, all of God's gifts are meant to be given back to him. They're all of God's gifts are meant for his glory. 
And God granted her son for a time so he could use Samuel to bring about his plans. She comes, she makes the sacrifice, she brings Eli, the child to Eli and presents him and says, do you remember me? I'm the woman you thought was drunk. You know, I stood before you weeping and praying before God. She says, oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord. Look at down in verse 26. I'm the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Look at what God has done. Look at what God can do. Out of barrenness, out of sadness and sorrow, terrible marriage and bad circumstances, God has granted my petition. I've lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he's lent to the Lord. And it says, and he worshiped the Lord there. As we close, I can't help but remember the story of another barren woman. She bore a son that would be a forerunner of another king. You see, Samuel here at the beginning of the kingship of Israel, we have another barren woman. Her name was Elizabeth at the other end of the kingship of Israel. She was an old woman. She was barren. Cousin of Mary. And God raised up another boy to go before, to herald, to anoint the final king. Isn't it neat seeing how God writes history in such a way that you can see his story played out again and again and again, pointing ultimately to the final king that we're all looking for, that we all need to hope in, that he is the Lord of hosts, and he has inaugurated his final king, and he uses this barren Elizabeth to be the one who would have John, who would anoint Jesus in his baptism and be the true final king and bring about his plans to bless all the peoples of the earth because God is the kind of God who answers prayer, who brings people from lowly, obscure, troubled circumstances to bring about his blessing. And that's our hope. Amen. Go and the band come up and, and we'll get ready to play a song. And I ask you to stand now, if you will, while we pray. Father, thank you for this account that has demonstrated your character, your nature, your care for us, Lord. And Lord, I pray that we would have hope in you, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven and earth over all authorities and principalities and powers, God. I pray we would look up to you in our distress. We would cry out to you, pour out our souls. But God, I pray we would not stop there. I pray, Lord, we would get up in faith and we would go out trusting in you, Lord, knowing that you like